I'm Jillian Marie Kendall, and Moss Whelan has asked me if I'd like to talk about my writing and about writing in general, and I'm delighted to do so. I'm an English professor, a profession I love, at Smith College, which is a college that I love, and it's a wonderful profession for somebody who's a writer. My specialty is Shakespeare and non-Shakespearean Renaissance drama and 17th century poetry. I'm not sure that Shakespeare's an inspiration, he's too good, but we do have something in common. I struggle with plot. Uh, I struggle with that plot arc that ties the entire novel together. And Shakespeare is not strong in the plot area either. You might think, oh no, he's got great plots. Well, he does, but in all the 38 plus plays he's written, only two of his plots are his. He borrowed the rest, uh, substantially borrowed them so that, for example, uh, Othello is Cynthia's The Moor rewritten and uh, The Winter's Tale is Robert Greene's Pandosto rewritten, only not much, not, not very much rewritten. Romeo and Juliet is Arthur Brooks Romeus and Juliet and so on and on. So um, in the 21st century, we can't really borrow plots the way Shakespeare did. By the way, the two plays that he didn't borrow plots for are Midsummer Night's Dream and The Tempest. I also teach the writing of fiction in a course called World Building and a course on the post-apocalyptic novel, which I call The End of the World as We Know It. I'm lucky in that when I grew up, I was also in an environment conducive to writing. Both my parents were writers. My mother, Carol Kendall, started her writing career writing false articles for a magazine called True Confessions. She moved on to writing murder mysteries and then became a well-known children's book writer. Her book, The Gamage Cup, was an on a Newbery Honor book in the 50s. Her book, The Firelings, won the Mythopaic Award, the Aslan Award. Award. Uh, she won the Ohioana Award, etc. She um, Her books are still in print. And my father, Paul Murray Kendall, also um, an English professor, was a biographer and historian. And his biographies were very successful, actually bestsellers. And they're still in print. And I see sometimes people on the Metro reading them. I also see them in bookstores. And it's a wonderful, wonderful feeling to, to do so. Um, a reviewer once called my father, um, quote, a giant redwood among the jack pines. And he loved that review. He'd quote it, he, that giant redwood. We got a little tired of that giant redwood after a while, but um, he was certainly a well-known writer and both my parents encouraged me to write and to read. They thought that reading was tremendously important. And I have to agree. I think that one of the most important things a writer can do is to read. Out of reading comes all writing. And the minute that any one of us puts a pen to paper and writes a word of fiction, we are becoming part of a giant, long, distinguished tradition of writing. And we need to be aware of the tradition before we can participate in it. So before you can write fantasy, you need to read fantasy, you need to read Dickens, you need to read Austen, you need to read um, not just the classics, but 
everything you can get your hands on because everything is part of that giant, grand tradition that you want to be part of or that you are part of. And I think that um, as a writer, nothing's more important um, than reading except, no, nothing's more important than reading. I was very lucky when I was a child to be surrounded by books and I loved to read. I was addicted to reading. I read all the time, um, maybe to excess if that's possible. My tastes were somewhat old-fashioned. I liked The Secret Garden by Frances Hodgson Burnett, which was published in 1911. I loved E. Nesbitt's fantasies and her realistic fiction like The Railway Children, which is her best-known, perhaps, book. Um, she wrote in the 19th and early 20th century. Um, I loved other writers like Lloyd Alexander, his Pridane Chronicles, Edgar Eager with his magical books, Half Magic, Magic by the Lake, The Time Garden, Tolkien, um, Andre Norton's The Borrowers. I loved these books. I wanted to somehow pass from my own primary world into the world of enchantment and magic that was part of these books that these books held out to me as a possibility. I wanted to go down the rabbit hole. I wanted to go through the looking glass. I wanted to go into that magic Narnia wardrobe and come out on the other side. And as I was reading as a child, I thought, there have got to be more books in the world like these. There have got to be. And I found that in fact, there was a limit to the number of books I could find. And I thought, when I grow up, I've, I've got to write some of these because there aren't enough of them. Well, I, I've written two published novels now, The Garden of Darkness, Ravenstone Press, 2014, and The Book of Forbidden Wisdom, HarperCollins, 2016. Um, but they're not quite like the books that I still want to write. They're not quite like those classic fantasies. Um which are lyrical as well as beautifully written. They're lyrical, they're almost poetic in many places. My books are a little darker than those texts that I enjoyed so much. Maybe not darker than Tolkien, although I have a penchant uh, towards the grisly occasionally, and I'm told that they can be even a little bit gruesome at points. I try not to be gratuitously gruesome. And that leads to another question that, um, that Moss has asked me, which is, is there anything you won't write? I think the answer is, there are things that I don't write. There are things that just don't interest me very much. Um, I don't write pornography. I don't write violence for the sake of violence. Although there is, there is a fair bit of violence in some of my novels, um, and there's sex as well. Um, I don't, I don't want to write books that are going to hurt people because they portray people as stereotypes, and that's something I, I think uh, we all want to avoid. Because who wants to read about stereotypes when you can read about characters who seem alive? And so I was lucky in another sense because I wasn't only surrounded by so many books as a child and books of fantasy, 
but I was surrounded by really good, well-written, solid books. Really well-written. And that has had a tremendous effect on me. When I read, I'm picky. I don't want to wade through bad prose. I, I don't want to read or run into bad grammar. I don't want a badly constructed narrative voice or a plot full of holes. And my big question is, who's got the time for that? Who's got the time to read that kind of book? So I try and write very carefully um, and avoid some of those pitfalls. And I really appreciate it when authors uh, take the time to really craft a piece of beautiful literature so that I can really enjoy reading it. There are different ways to trigger your reader's interest and to get that reader to turn the page. And one of those ways is by having a strong voice, is by giving at least one of your characters a really strong voice, a voice that's consistent. You know who this person is because when they speak in dialogue, they are consistent in their world view. You want characters who, or at least your protagonist, to be recognizable by anything that they say or things that they do. This is harder than it sounds, uh, as many of you know. I find it very difficult to create that voice of a character, partly because I'm usually caught up in the voice of the main, main characters of my previous novel. And I tend to go back to those voices and discover that the, the um, characters in my new novel are speaking an awful lot like the ones in the old novel. And I need to break through that barrier and come up with new voices, new and interesting and different voices from the ones I've used before. And once you have that voice, um, that's compelling. People want to read more from that, about that voice. They want to hear more words from that voice. And that voice shapes your book as a whole and gives it strength. Something that helps create a voice is getting a, getting a good name. I'm having a terrible time coming up with a name for my protagonist in my current novel. Uh, I don't like to give much away, but I will say that she started as Mina. She went on to become Juliet. I experimented with Star. And I also looked at Golden, which I rather quickly rejected. I'm working on another name right now. We shall see. I will let you know when I finished. I want to go back for a moment to something I said about not hurting people, that I don't like to write things that I think will hurt people. I think that's very different from writing fiction that makes people uncomfortable. I'm all for writing fiction that upsets people. I'm all for writing fiction that challenges people's maybe deeply held beliefs. I'm all for fiction that is not at all like a comfort blanket. And I think it's important to see the difference between hurting people and challenging people, uh, pushing their, their comfort zone. I think that 
Really good books do that. Uh, really books leave you questioning, leave you upset, leave you uh, weeping sometimes or angry, but they don't leave you comfortable in your own beliefs with everything about the world uh, that you see confirmed. I think that literature is challenging. Starting to write is also extremely challenging. Starting to write is a process. Uh, it's said that some people say that God created the world ex nihilo, which is to say out of nothing. And we as writers face the same task to create something ex nihilo, out of nothing. And that beginning to create, that moment of beginning to create is a very challenging moment. We start with staring at a blank page or a blank computer screen. And that's actually a little bit scary. You've got to put something down. And I've always felt that fiction is something that as you write, you become more and more restricted in the process of writing. So the minute you put down one word, you are headed towards an ending. And the more words you put down, the more you are writing yourself, uh, you, the more you are writing yourself into kind of a corner, you are headed towards an ending and it's going to be darn hard to change that ending when you put down a lot of words. That is, put down a sentence and you've already got your ending there waiting for you to find it. You may not know what it is at the beginning, but all those words you put down count. And that's why the blank page can be so scary. Douglas Adams once said, and I, I love this, um, that writing is easy. You just sit down and look at the blank page and wait for your forehead to begin to bleed. There are things to think about avoiding when you write, when you finally get that first word that's going to lead you inevitably and inexorably to the ending of your work. There are things to avoid like, and you've heard this before, adverbs. Adverbs have been demonized uh, and they're with, with some reason, adverbs in dialogue attribution are clumsy, usually. He said grimly, she said enthusiastically, they said, I'm trying to think of something, sluggishly, that's a good one. Um, all those are adverbs that are completely unnecessary. If somebody says something excitedly, we should already know that they're excited and that when they speak, they're going to be speaking with excitement. Adverbs elsewhere are usually unnecessary too. So watch out for those adverbs. Showing, not telling is important. If you tell what's going to happen, if you explain to your reader, your reader's simply going to get bored. Showing is, is a way to keep your reader awake. And it's important, again, to remember this. You have to give your reader a reason to turn every single page. There has to be tension, a line of tension throughout your entire work. That, that impulse 
to continue reading is something you have to trigger with every word that you write. There are different ways to trigger your reader's interest and to get that reader to turn the page. And one of those ways is by having a strong voice, is by giving at least one of your characters a really strong voice, a voice that's consistent. You know who this person is because when they speak in dialogue, they are consistent in their world view. You want characters who, or at least your protagonist, to be recognizable by anything that they say or things that they do. This is harder than it sounds, uh, as many of you know. I find it very difficult to create that voice of a character, partly because I'm usually caught up in the voice of the main, main characters of my previous novel. And I tend to go back to those voices and discover that the, the um, characters in my new novel are speaking an awful lot like the ones in the old novel. And I need to break through that barrier and come up with new voices, new and interesting and different voices from the ones I've used before. And once you have that voice, um, that's compelling. People want to read more from that, about that voice. They want to hear more words from that voice. And that voice shapes your book as a whole and gives it strength. Something that helps create a voice is getting a, getting a good name. I'm having a terrible time coming up with a name for my protagonist in my current novel. Uh, I don't like to give much away, but I will say that she started as Mina. She went on to become Juliet. I experimented with Star. And I also looked at Golden, which I rather quickly rejected. I'm working on another name right now. We shall see. I will let you know when I finished. I mentioned how hard it can be to find a voice for the protagonist. I find the hardest question I get when I give a reading comes from, well, it comes from every audience I've given a reading to. The question is this, where do you get your ideas? And my answer is always the same, and I never, I never give this answer, but it's always the same in my head. I don't know. I don't know where I get my ideas. I was giving a reading at our local independent bookstore, Broadside Books, and I looked up as I was about to ask, question, ask for questions, and I saw a t-shirt that had a picture of Shakespeare on it. And underneath was a, well, above him was a thought balloon that read, this shit just writes itself. And as my first questioner said, where do you get your ideas? I looked at that t-shirt and I was really tempted to say, this shit just writes itself. But it doesn't. Uh, it doesn't do that at all. I don't know where I get my ideas. Um, they must come from everywhere. They must come from, as I said, the stuff that I read. They come from talking to people. They come from discussing stuff with other writers. They come from, I don't know. I don't know. This shit just writes itself. 
The favorite part for me of a book depends on the book. In The Garden of Darkness, 2014, by uh, Ravenstone was the publisher for that. My favorite part comes with a reveal. And I'm not going to do any spoilers here. So I will just say that it turns out that two characters are related to each other. Now, I had no clue that these two characters were related until I was way into the novel. I was three quarters of the way through and suddenly it came to me, oh my God, these characters are related. That meant, however, that I had to go back to the beginning of the novel and put in all the clues necessary for people to be able to see that I wasn't cheating, that the material was there all the time, and if you read carefully enough, you would know but I only found out near the end that these two people were in fact related. So that was one of my favorite things about the Garden of Darkness. In the Book of Forbidden Wisdom, uh, 2016, that's HarperCollins was the publisher, I had a different favorite part. It was the opening, the opening scene, and it caused me a lot of trouble, that opening scene. I wrote, it's a wedding, I'll, I'll give that away, and I wrote, and I wrote it, and it seemed to flow, which was nice. And I wrote, and something interrupted the wedding, and I wrote that, and then I put my pen down, I was writing longhand, and I was done. I had nothing more to say. It was perfect. And by saying it's perfect, what I really mean is, it was done. I I liked it. I thought it was just hey, great. It was the cat's pajamas. It was it was perfect. It was so perfect that there was no room to write another word. So it wasn't really perfect at all. But I did like that opening very much. I just had a lot of trouble getting out of that opening and into the rest of the novel which was just waiting to be to be written. Um, and that novel ended up being actually a journey story. So I had to get my character out of that wedding and, and onto her horse and off to adventures. And then there's publicity. Publicity is a thorn in the side of most writers. You write a book, you finish a novel, it's published, you're delighted, you love the cover, the blurb's terrific. And then comes the part in which you publicize the book. And increasingly, publicity nowadays is very, very different than what it used to be. Nowadays, publishers expect writers to do a lot of the publicity work. And that can mean different things. I went on a blog tour when The Garden of Darkness came out in 2014. I was told that a blog tour would be a great way to get publicity. I did the same thing with the Book of Forbidden Wisdom. And that means going on a blog and having a guest post um, and writing something like, um, I've already talked about my favorite bit of one of my one of my novels. And one might do that, write about a favorite part of your novel, um, write about some aspect of it that would publicize it and repeat its name and get it into people's consciousness. And 
a blog tour just takes you from blog to blog to blog and gives you an appointment to do that kind of thing. It's, I shouldn't say this, but I'm going to say this. I don't think it's very interesting. I think it's very hard to make those things interesting. I think pretty often they aren't. Um, and I think that they probably don't do a lot of the work that they are meant to do, which is to sell books. A book review is one thing. It's kind of an art form. Uh, but a, a guest blog is is another thing. Um, it's, in my case, it was to sell books. That was the purpose of it. Not to talk about literature, not to talk about writing, as I am now, but simply to flog my book. Um, I have a friend who has quit her day job and writes full-time, which is a wonderful luxury, except that it isn't really a luxury because she works incredibly hard and all the time, and she does all her own publicity. She does it really well, and, and she's written a lot of novels, and she's doing well with them, but the time she spends on publicity is considerable. She leads workshops. She's on panels. She goes to Comic-Cons. She's um, everywhere. And I think, that I, I think that it's amazing. And I admire her for it a great deal. But I not only don't have that much time, because that is her job to do that, I don't have that much time because my job is a different kind of job, but I'm shy and always have been shy. And so I have a hard time getting up there and saying, I want you to buy my book. Here's where you can get it. Here's a stack right here. Just give me this money and I will give you my book. I'll even sign it. Um, I, I just have trouble doing that and I shouldn't, but, um, but I do. So I'm not sure that I'm in love with the way that publicity's done now, with it being so dependent on the writer, so dependent on the writer's ability to, to get onto blogs or to get reviewed. And, and it's not the publisher that gets the reviewers to write about the book. It's up to the writer to get people to write about the book, which shifts the focus considerably. I love book signings though. They are so much fun and people have good questions and I have a rapport with the audience. You get this rapport, this feeling that we're all in this together. You're going to listen to me read and I'm going to promise to try not to bore you and to try and read good bits. And I find audiences are really responsive at signings and have good questions, um, including the impossible question of where you get your ideas from, but really good questions. And um, I have a great time there. But most of publicity is not book signings. Most of publicity is is blogs and things like that. Um, also, my publisher said, go on Twitter and sell your book. Well... It's not like that, and I think that I'm glad I don't use Twitter to sell my book. I love Twitter. I love the writing community on Twitter, and I feel that I've gotten to know people, or I respond and interact with people on Twitter. Um, 
people from around the world with writing interests, with interests, other interests that are similar to mine. You know, people who have solved the problem of how to keep deer out of their gardens, which is on my mind at the moment. But Twitter's wonderful. It's not a place, though, that I think of as somewhere I'm going to sell my books. Uh, if I were to just go out there and say, buy my book, buy my book, buy my book, I would be, you can block me if I do that. Now, if you invite me to tell you about my book, you're going to get an earful, but probably not because I have publicity at the back of my head, just because I like to talk about writing. I want to step back for just a second and go over something I said about blogs. And I want to make it clear that I like blogs. What I don't like is publishers using blogs simply to sell books. I think blogs that talk about books and talk about fiction are wonderful and partake of that art form that we call the book review. I have two blogs I really like. One is John Scalzi's blog. He has a section in it that he calls the big idea, the big idea section, in which he has authors come in and talk about central ideas central to their texts, uh, major themes that have an impact not only on the characters, but on the way we read the book and on the way we may think about the world. Another blog I like is Mary Robinette Cowell's blog. And in that blog, she also has something for authors. She has authors write about uh, something called My Favorite Bit. I really like that, My Favorite Bit, in which they talk about, um, as I've done here, the favorite part of their novel. Uh, and in so doing, of course, they're talking about technique and things like style and things like theme. And it's really interesting to read. So I, I like blogs. Um, I don't like flogging books. I want to talk for a minute about a question I have sometimes been asked. And that is, what is the worst book I've ever read? People ask me that. What's the worst book you've ever read? And I have to answer that because I read a lot, a, a huge amount really, I mean, I like to read when I have extra time. I have a large selection of books to pick from for the category of worst book. There are a lot of contenders and I have to be frank and, and just say, I'm actually not gonna pick one out for particular attention here. I think that would be not only unfair to the book in some ways, but it would certainly be unfair to all the other bad books that are contending for first place. I can be astonished sometimes with the mediocre stuff that gets published, as I'm sure you can be as well. And I find, actually I find particularly problematic translations. There's so many bad translations out there. There are good ones as well. I don't know if you've read A Hundred Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez, but you should. One Hundred Years of Solitude is a fabulous book. It was written in Spanish. It was translated into English by uh, Gregory Rabassa. And Gabriel Garcia Marquez was said at one point, the English translation is much better than my original text. Now, of course, you can't trust anything writers say. 
but I think he was indicating that it's a very high quality translation and well worth reading that book in translation. But a lot of translations don't come out very well, which gets me back though to the worst book. Uh, bad books have often bad grammar, but it isn't always that. It's simply bad writing, cutting corners, not showing any skill at all. And I have a problem with that because skill is something that everybody has a level of skill and you can improve your skill. Writing isn't magic. Some parts of it are magic, but in general, writing isn't magic. It's work, it's skill, it's something you learn how to do. And once you realize that it's something you learn how to do, I think a lot of the barriers between writers and their books fall away because once you realize you can do it, you can write a prose that is going to be a prose that conveys good characters, good plot. Once you realize that, it, it changes you. You can be a writer if you aren't one already. And you don't even have to go take a class to become a good writer. You just write and read a lot, and that will shape you. The magic, it doesn't always come. You can read a lot of books, and you'll see that some writers are more talented than others. But there is a lot of leeway for learning and for learned ability, a lot of room there to improve. And I strongly believe that you should go for it you should work on your writing until you've got something that is never going to be in my uh, list of possible winners for the worst book I've ever read uh, award. One thing that I feel helps a lot with writing fiction is the fact that I write nonfiction as well. And it's wonderful to be able to move from one to the other and back again. I find myself really refreshed by doing some nonfiction prose for a while and then getting back to my fiction. Um, so as a Shakespeare scholar, as a literary critic, it's great because it's in fact part of my job really to do research and to produce articles and I love it. And hey, maybe you could consider that I'm even getting paid for it in some, in some way. I've written a number of articles. Uh, one is on Titus Andronicus, Shakespeare's Titus Andronicus, which is a very dark play. And I do tend to like the dark plays, revenge, tragedies, tragedies of blood, and post-apocalyptic plays as well. Titus Andronicus is a tragedy of blood and a revenge tragedy. And it's extreme. In the course of the play, three hands go missing, that is, are lopped off. Uh, three heads go missing, are lopped off. I have three heads written, but I have, that's wrong. It's two heads go missing and three hands. Um, the enemy's sons are killed and baked into a pie, which their father eats. And at the end, there's a whole round of murders to sort of tie everything together. The article I wrote was called, it was in Shakespeare Quarterly, it was called Lend Me Thy Hand, Metaphor and Mayhem in Titus Andronicus. And uh, let's see, I also wrote an article called 
Overkill in Shakespeare, also in Shakespeare Quarterly, which is about the ways in which it's difficult to, to kill characters. They come back as ghosts. They haunt you. They just won't die. And there are a number of plays that are like that in the Renaissance in which characters are just hard to kill. I also edited a volume of essays, Shakespearean Power and Punishment. Uh, I had an essay in it and I wrote the introduction. And it's, it's a fun volume to read. I guess that doesn't sound right. It's an interesting volume to read. Punishment in the Renaissance was extreme. It was cruel. It was brutal. Um, it was appalling what they would do. Uh, the, often the, the punishment was made to somehow fit the crime. So, for example, a, a cook was found guilty of poisoning three people and he was boiled to death. Um, it gets much more gruesome than that. But in Shakespearean Power and Punishment, a um, number of writers and myself, we look at the underlying causes for this kind of brutality and what the state had in mind. I've also written some introductions. Uh, my father, Paul Murray Kendall, wrote a very best-selling biography of Richard III, and when Norton brought it out again, I wrote the introduction. Norton also brought out my father's book, Louis XI, and I wrote the introduction to that as well. So uh, I keep myself busy with nonfiction when I just need a break from the fiction. Right now I'm working on a book uh, about the apocalypse. Tudor times were obsessed with the apocalypse. Uh, it's called Warm Bodies and Happy Resurrections. Shakespeare and the Comic Apocalypse. It's fun to see how Shakespeare takes apocalyptic imagery, which could be scary and terrifying, and uses it as comic material in his comedies. The Tudors were very materialistic in the way they I don't mean that in our sense of materialistic. They took the apocalypse as something material that was going to happen, not something otherworldly, but something that could happen any day. They would make up dates as to when the apocalypse would be. And when those dates would pass, they would cheerfully make up another date. But they were certain it was coming and it was coming soon. Now at the last judgment of the apocalypse, everybody's supposed to, in Tudor tradition and in the Bible, uh, get up out of their graves and go to be judged by, uh, by God. And the Tudors were ready. When they would bury people in some places, they would loosen the shroud, the sheet that they were wrapped in, so that they'd be able to get out of the grave more quickly, so that they wouldn't be hindered by the garment they were buried in. They also had theories as to how it would work if, for example, you were buried, but at some point in your life, you had lost your arm or a hand or your head. And what would happen is at the last judgment, they were quite sure that all the bits would come back together. So your hand would rejoin you, your head would come back. If a beast had eaten you, it would regurgitate you and you would be all connected into one uh, they thought, beautiful body that would be ready to be judged by Christ at the second coming. So that's the sort of mythology of the Tudor period, and I'm examining the way Shakespeare turns that on its head in many comedies. And it's it's an interesting thing to do. And then when I'm tired of that, when I've spent enough time down that 
rabbit hole of research, reading everything that other people have written so that I can get to my own ideas, I can turn to fiction. And I can put my feet up and my computer on my lap and I can write fiction for a while. And it feels great. It feels very different. So that's one way in which I keep things fresh. I'm very busy writing fiction and nonfiction. And also during the semester, a lot of my time is focused on teaching, which I love doing, and on doing things like grading papers, which I'm less fond of. But the teaching's wonderful. I do a lot of preparation for that, which leaves me, as I said, the vacations are when I get a lot of the writing done. But there's a problem there. And that is, it's really easy as a fiction writer to isolate. I find it uh, all too easy just not to watch the news. It's upsetting. I don't want to watch it. My life is good. Really good. I have plenty to eat. I have a car. I have a, a house that I live in. A garden that I tend. I, I could eat easily tune out the real world even more than I do and I already do it a fair bit. My real world doesn't resemble the real world of most people in this on earth. My real world is very separate from the experience of many many most people and I don't always pay attention to that. That's something essential. That's something important. That's something I should pay attention to. And it's just too easy to live in my writer's bubble. I don't think I'm alone in this, but I'm the only one who can call myself out on it. I mean, other people can too, but I'm the only one who can really feel it when I know I'm isolating too much. When I've lost track of the essential stuff, now, the essential stuff to me starts with my own family, but it goes much farther than that. We have extended family, and then we have connections with people, and then we have people with whom we have no personal connections, but we're all part of the human race, which sounds corny, but I mean it. And I don't want to wait until something bad happens to me to notice what's happening around me and what's happening to other people. One of the things about writing fiction and nonfiction prose is that it shows we have a voice. We have a voice that we want to share. And I think we need to use that voice in many different ways, sometimes simply in conversation, to assert things that we believe are true and to contradict things that we believe are not true, are not fair, are not just, are not right. We have a voice. Let's use that voice in constructive ways. I want to do that. I don't want to be completely alone in my little garret writing. Uh, I, I tend to do that, but I don't, I don't think that's right for me to do. Just because my children are not in cages doesn't mean that I shouldn't be aware of others, of other people's children. So use your voice. Use that voice to battle the forces of darkness, which now may be in the ascendant.
I want to spend a moment telling you who has my back now. My husband has my back. My children have my back. But in particular, my husband, Robert Dorrit, is amazing as a support to me. He makes it so that I have time to work. He, he does things that would slow me down, take up time. He just clears things out of my way. Uh, he's amazing. I wrote on Twitter once a little bit about him and, and a woman wrote back, what is this mythological creature and where do I get one? He is like a mythological creature. He's wonderful and he always has my back. So that's, that's a, a luxury I, I have. Um, he likes my writing, which is, of course, terrific. Uh, but he's also a wonderful critic and not shy about voicing his opinions because he knows that if he finds something wrong, and he's a very good reader, as I said, so I need to listen to him. If you find something wrong um, and it gets through so that it's in print, other people are going to notice it. It's not going to just disappear or be unnoticed by people who are reading so he helps me out. My sister also helps me out. My sister has my back, uh, Callie Kendall Orzak. She is a reader for me. She is there for me. If I need help in anything, I can give her a call. Um, so Robert Dort and Callie Kendall Orzak, thank you both. And thanks to my children, Gabriel and Sasha too, because they give me support and love and I need those things. Finally, I want to talk about what uh, Moss has called my legacy. What do I want my legacy to be? Well, I'll tell you one thing. I don't want to have she had potential written on my gravestone. I want to realize my potential. I want to thank you for listening to me. I want to thank Moss Whelan for asking me questions and inviting me to talk about writing. I want to thank you all again, and I hope that you write. I hope you enjoy writing. I hope that you read. I hope that you enjoy reading, and I hope you have a wonderful year. Take care. Bye-bye.